Thank you, choir. As you're being seated, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 and uh, hold your spot there. Matthew 9, we're going to be reading a few passages uh, out of that particular chapter. So Matthew chapter 9, and we're looking at the seventh message in this series today called Jesus Come and See. We've been walking through somewhat of a biography. Of course, the Gospels, as I say every Sunday, the Gospels give us the best biography of all. It's without error. It's written by God. Um, But the the Gospels, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they are lengthy. And so what we're doing in the series is trying to just kind of pull together somewhat of a biography of Jesus, hitting some of the high points, not all of them, obviously, and uh, just stacking one on top of the other as we move. And so we started a few weeks ago at the very beginning in the very first message about a month and a half or so ago, uh, we started by looking at that eternal quality of Jesus, that he's without beginning and without end, that he has, that there's never been a time when Jesus was not, that, uh, and the reason that he is eternal is because he's God, uh, no less God, when he will walk this earth in any other point, uh, he always has been, is, and always will be. And so we started the series with that simple quality that he is eternal, that he is God. Uh, he claimed to be God. Others claimed him to be God. Uh, the scriptures support that. And he proved himself to be God uh, as well, in, not just through the death and the resurrection, but in many other ways also. And, and then we added to that by looking at the humanity side of Jesus, uh, 100% God, and then when he walked this earth, 100% human as well. And so born of Mary, placed in a manger in the city of Bethlehem, uh, grew up, lived on this earth for approximately 33 years, and uh, through all of it sinless, and, uh, and yet through all of it completely human as well in a way that we can identify with. And so 100% God, 100% man. And then more recently, we've looked at his, um, his mission and his message and his ministry. And, and uh, his mission, we looked at a couple of Sundays ago, was simply summarized in Luke 19, 10, to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, he did a lot of things. Jesus was involved in a lot of different things, but his mission boiled down was to seek and to save that which is lost. And then the message, as we looked at last Sunday, he preached on a lot of topics. He preached on, spoke on a lot of different uh, subjects, but the core of his message was of a new kingdom or a different kingdom with a different king and an open invitation for every one of us to be a part of it. A different kingdom, right? Not like this world. A different kingdom, not like that of the Roman Empire or anything else that the people of his day were accustomed to. His was a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. That had been prophesied of the Old Testament, was fulfilled in his coming, and, uh, and still exists today. It was a kingdom of God, a kingdom that will never end. Daniel chapter 9, Nebuchadnezzar made reference to that as well. It's an eternal kingdom. And then he talked about him being a different king, not Caesar, not Herod, not any other other world leader and ever in any in existence, but rather a different king where he reigns as Lord and as God and as king. And then this open invitation for all of us to be a part of that, where you have, have received an invitation. Many of you took him up on that invitation, and one day as a little kid or maybe an adult, you place your faith in Jesus, and you made the decision to say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. Jesus, you died and rose in my place, and I accept you and invite you to forgive and take over my life. And when you did that, you became part of a new kingdom, and <laughs> You, you uh, took on a new king where you weren't on the throne anymore. He was, and, and now after having accepted that invitation, you're part of the work that he, uh, that he demonstrated when he was on this earth as well. And so he had a different mission. He had a, a different message. Today we're going to look at what his ministry was specifically. I'm not a big alliterator. I've never really tried much to alliterate in my messages. Some, some pastors, when they we preach and communicate, they can alliterate every single thing. I, I'm not smart enough or good enough to do that. I've never really tried to alliterate. But I have to say, 
We've looked at his message, we've looked at his mission, or looked at his mission, looked at his message, and now today his ministry. Hey, wow, that's something, right? And uh, the first service was about as impressed by that as you are. So, so today we're going to look at his ministry specifically. I'm, I'm going to give you a few different principles to jot down. Here's the first one, and, and, and I, I think we need to establish this right off the bat, that we're called to replicate many of the aspects of Jesus' life on this earth. Many of the things we see that were demonstrated through Jesus' life on this earth, we are called to replicate that in our own lives as well. Now, not in our own strength, because none of us can do that. But remember, when Jesus returned to the Father, he made the promise, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And early in the book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit indeed was sent. God himself, the person of the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer And so when we realize that we're called to replicate, we're called to pattern our lives after the example of Jesus' life and to even replicate many of the aspects of his life when he was on this earth, it's not in our strength and power, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not called to replicate every aspect of Jesus' life. Right? God doesn't expect us to, to somehow find a hill and a cross on it and, and to be crucified on that cross. We can't do the work of salvation. Only Jesus could accomplish the work of salvation. We can't, we can't save ourselves. We can't bring our own forgiveness. Only he could do that. We're not expected to replicate that. Now, we are called to take up our cross and to follow Jesus and to die to ourselves, but only Jesus could do the work of salvation. But so many of the other aspects of his life on this earth We're called to replicate things like his compassion, for example. We're going to look at a passage in Matthew 9 in a moment where it demonstrates his compassion. We're called to replicate that compassion of Jesus. We're called to replicate the love that he had in our lives, to demonstrate his love the way he did when he walked this earth 2,000 years ago. We're called to care about people. We're called to pursue the same things that he pursued, to stand for the same things that he stood for. We're called to surrender to the will of the Father the way he surrendered his life on this earth to the will of the Father. We're called to embody uh, uh, everything that he embodied for the most part, right, in the lives that we live specifically today, 2,000 years later. So as I mentioned in these past few weeks, we've looked at his, um, his mission and uh, his message and now his ministry and, and how those things fit together. A lot of you, maybe you're familiar with, um, with a trilogy, right? Maybe you've read books, you like certain book series that you've read where maybe there were three books or more, but three books in that series is kind of a trilogy or movie series, uh, you know, where, I don't know, Star Wars had what, a, a you know, bazillion different uh, movies that came out of that, but movies like like that, where one, one uh, film kind of feeds into the next one. It's part of a trilogy or part of a series. Well, when you look at Jesus's mission, and when you look at his message, and then look at his ministry, one feeds into to the next as well. And in the same way, when you read a book series that's a trilogy, or you watch a film series that's a trilogy, right, one bleeds into, and it informs, and it shapes the other, which then bleeds into and informs and shapes the other. That's the way his mission and his message and his ministry operate. They don't exist in in isolation one from the other. But here's where I'm going with this. His mission to seek and to save the lost, that's what he was all about on this earth, to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. That mission ultimately spoke into the message that he projected, right? And the message that he proclaimed, the highways and the byways to the rich people and the poor people, the up and coming and the left out, that message did not change. It was to repent because the kingdom of God is here and to ultimately trust in and surrender to him, that he was the only way to the Father. And his mission on life dovetailed into his message of a new kingdom 
kingdom with a new king and everyone invited to follow and to come into that, right? Which also then informed the way he lived his life, his ministry. One fed into the other. They weren't in isolation. He didn't have a ministry that, or, 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 a, uh, or, or rather a mission that was in conflict with his message that was then in isolation and completely different from the way he lived his life in ministry. They all fit together. All of them fit together. They all dovetailed one into the other. And for us, it is exactly the same. Here's the thing. For us as a church, we cannot have a mission that is different from the mission of Jesus. It can't, it, that, that can't happen. Otherwise, we're not a church. We have to extend his mission of seeking and saving those who are lost. Now, we can't save them, but we can introduce them to the Savior uh, the way that Jesus introduced himself to hurting and distant people, right? But that's our mission. We can't divorce it from what his mission was on this earth. And ultimately, the message of our church has to be the same message of his. It's not about our kingdom, not about any of us, right, as influencers. It is about a different kingdom, the kingdom of God, a different king, that being Jesus, and extending an invitation constantly in everything we do for people to come and to know him. Our message can't be any different than the message of Jesus 2,000 years ago when he walked this earth. And then the way we do ministry. It can't afford to be any different from the way Jesus did ministry as well. So how did he do ministry? Let's take a look here at Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 36. I think this verse specifically really helps us to get a heart for what Jesus' ministry was. Just a second, we're going to piece this together again. But look at what it says here in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 36. Matthew gives a little commentary, then he quotes Jesus. He says, seeing the people, he, Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, these were the guys that were following his lead. They were going to ultimately pick up the work and run with it after he ascended to the Father. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now remember, when he says the harvest is plentiful, he is referring to his mission, that there are people far from God and I've come, Jesus would say, to seek and to save them. And it's as though he could say to his disciples, remember last Sunday we looked at how his, uh, his way of communicating was uh, many times very visual. Maybe there was a real field there, or maybe it was just a hillside of people covered with, uh, hillside covered with people, and he would look out and he would kind of maybe sweep his hand and say, look at there, the, the fields are white under harvest. They are ready to be harvested. There are hurting people far from God who are ready to be found and saved. But then he makes this comment in verse 37. He says, but the workers are few. In other words, there are few who are willing to embrace my mission, share my message, and partner with me in ministry. Here was the response, verse 38. Therefore, beseech the Lord, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. It's always been his. It's never been ours. Always his. We, we may use the terminology, well, this is our church, or this is my ministry. It's always his, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So, so what is our response then as believers? Well, here's a second principle to jot down. As believers, again, very simple, just as I said, we're called to embrace his mission. We're called to share his message. And we're called to partner with him in ministry the way he did because it's all his. We're called to embrace his mission, not replace 
his mission. You ever seen, you don't have to answer this out loud, you ever seen a church that tried to replace Jesus' mission with one they thought was more important? Maybe they became more political, or maybe they became more about something else, another agenda, another message, right? I mean, we have some in our own city right here, close to where we are even, right? Who are, you can just very easily tell, they're, they're about a different mission and a different message, <laughs> And it's not good. It's not a good thing. It, 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 is, it is wandered from the mission of Jesus. We're not called to replace his mission as churches. We're not called to replace his mission. Our individual mission is not about advancing ourselves. It's not about having the best life we can have. It's not about our own comfort. It is about embracing his mission. That, 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 that's the way this works. We don't replace it. We embrace it. It's about sharing his message. We don't, we don't change his message. We don't keep his message under, uh, under a bushel, as Matthew 5 would say. We don't keep it hidden, but rather we share his message with those who need to hear and then it's all about partnering with him in his ministry. They all fit together. We, we minister and we see people the way that Jesus saw people. We roll up our sleeves and we get out of our comfort zones and we get out of the walls of the church and we do ministry the way that he did in the power of the Holy Spirit ultimately. So we embrace, we share, and we partner. We embrace the mission, we share the message, we partner in his ministry. That is the marching order right, for the church today. It's no different. It hasn't changed. We embrace his mission, we, we share his message, and we ultimately partner with him in his ministry. It's all his field. It's all his work. And the call is very simple. I mean, it, we do it in our neighborhoods, we do it in our families, we do it in our workplace, on our campuses, in the cities where we live, the neighborhoods where we live, everywhere we go, we seek to do that. It's what the first century church did. The whole reason we have the rest of the New Testament... Listen, if, if people did not do this, we would have no need for the rest of the New Testament. <laughs> the whole reason we have a New Testament, the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels, is because those early believers embraced the mission, shared the message, and partnered in ministry. Churches began to spring up. People were being saved. Communities of believers in, in big cities and small cities were beginning to, to not only be birthed into existence, but they were beginning to replicate and to spread and to grow. And they were popping up in other cities and other countries and other places around the world. That's why we have the rest of the New Testament, because the bulk of the rest of the New Testament is giving instruction to these new believers in these new churches to, so that they would continue to embrace the mission <laughs> and share the message and partner with Jesus in ministry. Have I said that enough? I don't know. So what exactly then, since this message is about his ministry, what exactly did his ministry look like? Hold your spot in Matthew 9 because we're going to come back. But over in the book of Acts chapter 10, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what Jesus' ministry was like. Now obviously this is Acts, it's not one of the Gospels. The context here is that the Gospel is spreading, believers are, are being born into the kingdom of God, people are being reached with the Gospel. Here, Simon Peter, one of his former disciples, is actually having a conversation, a gospel conversation with a man named Cornelius, his family, right? By the end of the chapter, they're, they're going to be saved. They're going to be in relationship with God. But here in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, look at how Peter describes Jesus to Cornelius and his family. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He went about doing good. It mentions that he also ultimately healed those who were oppressed by the devil. Now, there were some, as we'll get to in a moment, that he literally cast out demons from. But remember from a couple of weeks ago, 
Isaiah 61, the prophecy that the Messiah would set the captives free. And that kind of comes into play, I think, here, that Jesus was bringing people out of the kingdom of the enemy, right, and into the kingdom of God. And yet it says that he went about doing good. I mean, everywhere he went, he did good. There was never anyone who would meet Jesus and have interaction with Jesus, then Jesus would leave, who would be able to say, you know what, he was anything less than just good to me. If you cross paths with Jesus 2,000 years ago, whether it had been in the marketplace or, or in the temple or in a synagogue or on the, on the seashore, right? If you'd had any interaction with Jesus, you would have gone away only being able to say, he was nothing but good to me. He went about doing good, and he was perfect. He was sinless. And everywhere he went, he did works that demonstrated himself to ultimately be God. That was the, the, the whole context of his ministry. He went about doing good. He went about setting people free. So how long was his ministry? When you look at his ministry specifically, he lived for about 33 years, but his ministry was about three and a half years of his public ministry. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't do other things in his growing up years or his early adult years. It just means that the public ministry that started really at his baptism by John the Baptist and then ended when he ascended to the Father was about three and a half years of length. And we partly know that, I'll spare the details, we know literally two years of ministry based on the Passovers that were mentioned. There are three that were mentioned, and so one at one end, a year later, number two, a year later, number three, all mentioned in the book of John. And then many scholars believe when you roll in some of the other things outside of those Passovers, probably three and a half years of ministry. Luke 3.23 says he was about 30 years old when his ministry began. So right around the age of 33 when his ministry came to an end. And in that three and a half years of ministry, Jesus did nothing but good. All right, Outside of that, obviously, but nothing but good. And he built a name for himself that was admired and followed by some, and a name that was hated and despised by others. But it was always good. And it was always sinless. People say, why did he wait to be 30 years old before he started his ministry? Why not another time? Why not earlier? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that. A lot of people believe it was because in the first century that a Jewish rabbi was considered to be mature enough to be an, an authentic rabbi worthy of following when they reached the age of 30. Perhaps that was the, the reason why. In other words, Jesus checked all the boxes. Galatians said it was in the fullness of time that he came. He would live these 30 years, engage in three, three and a half years of public ministry before he would ultimately die on the cross. So, so what did his ministry look like? Well, there are different components to his ministry. One I've already mentioned, one aspect of his ministry was the work he did on the cross. He did the salvation work. His mission, seeking to save the lost, his greatest work was to die on the cross, rise again from the dead, fulfilled his mission, accomplished his mission, and that fuels our message, right? So the greatest work of ministry that he accomplished was his salvation work on the cross. Another aspect of his work that he engaged in of his ministry was preaching and teaching. We talked about that last Sunday where he went and he preached and he taught and it was always a message that fulfilled the mission. It was about the new kingdom and it was about the new king and it was about the invitation to be a part of all of it. That was the crux of his message and he preached it everywhere he went, on a hillside, to the masses, to the individuals, to the small groups. That was his message. And so a part of his ministry was one, his work of salvation on the cross, two, his preaching and teaching. Another aspect of his ministry were his miracles. It's hard to 
do a biography of Jesus without at least touching on his miracles for just a moment. So let me talk about that because it was part of his ministry. And by the way, I don't think we're expected to necessarily go down to River Street this weekend and try to perform a bunch of miracles. You know, they were, they were done often, uh, or, or at times, not often, but at times, in the Old Testament, they were done in his ministry as well, and you would see some kind of scattered across the New Testament. I don't know that that's necessarily something that he expects us to replicate as part of his ministry. About three dozen of his miracles recorded in the Gospels. They're not everywhere. They, they were not a common occurrence. Three and a half years of ministry, you got 36 of them mentioned. His miracles were of a wide variety um, of those three dozen, 16 of them were healings, seven of them were casting out demons, five of them were feeding, right, like feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, three of them were resurrections, Lazarus, for example, being the most well-known, um, the synagogue ruler's daughter, uh, 12-year-old girl, the daughter of Jairus was another, the widow of Nain, her son was the other, right, three times Jesus raised someone from the dead. So you see these three dozen miracles that he performed scattered through the Gospels. And here's the thing. Here's where it's often misunderstood. The miracles were never to just simply perform some showmanship, right? They were always for a purpose. They were to validate him as the Messiah to the Jews, as Lord, as God. That's why he did his miracles. That's why often today, whenever you hear stories of some flashy preacher somewhere who's on social media or he's on late night TV, he's coming on a crusade. I've never understood this. Selling tickets for a crusade. I don't know why they don't hang out in the hospitals, but that's another question, I suppose. But, you know, coming there, they're going to do miracles, buy a ticket, because they already know it's going to happen here at this time in this arena, you know, so get your ticket, show up, sit near the front, right? That's why none of that really makes sense. You didn't see them all over the place. 36 and three and a half years we have recorded from Jesus' ministry. Never to draw a crowd, never to impress, never as showmanship, always to validate his mission, his message through this ministry, that he would perform a miracle that would prove him to be unlike any other person in history. And when he performed his first miracle at a wedding in Galilee or in Cana uh, in Galilee, when he would do that, it, it was not just to dazzle the crowds, though they were dazzled. And people said, never have we tasted wine like this at a banquet such as this, right? And a lot of people get off track now and say, well, I guess I can go out and drink whatever I want because Jesus turned water into wine. That wasn't the point. The point was he superseded the natural process in nature in, in, that he had created and put into place, and he literally, in front of them, turned water into wine, proving himself to be Lord. Nobody else could do that. When he went walking out to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and these seasoned fishermen were scared out of their minds because of the storm, and here he comes walking across the surface of the water, he did not do that so that they would have a, a story to tell to all their grandkids and great-grandkids in the years to come. He did it to prove to these men upon whom the success of the mission would fall shortly to prove to them, I am not like anyone else, I am God. And I've superseded right, the natural order and I've walked to you on the surface of the sea. I mean, try that next time you're at Tybee, right? It's just head on towards Hilton Head, see how far you get. It's only seven miles. Just truck on across the surface of the world. No one can do this kind of thing. But Jesus, there were prophets in the Old Testament who did it, but they did not make the claims that he had made. And when he did these miracles, it wasn't to say, poof, 
Anybody want to see another one? Well, I'll be appearing at, at the feeding of the 5,000 tomorrow. Follow me. No, no, it was always follow me because I'm God. And follow me because you're lost in your sin. And you're like sheep without a shepherd. And I am your only hope of getting you to the Father. And he did the miracles. Part of the primary aspect of his ministry was he did these miracles not to impress, but to validate who he was. So when you look at his ministry, part of his ministry was comprised of his work on the cross, the salvation work. Part of it was comprised in his preaching and teaching. Part of it was comprised in his miracles. But then a part of his ministry, you could say the other vast chunk of his ministry was just simply ministry to people. It, it, was, it was helping lost, hurting, confused, desperate people. That was his ministry. It, it's this aspect of his ministry, I think, that we see maybe demonstrated the most. All four Gospels obviously talk about his work on the cross. All four Gospels talk about miracles, record what he, what he taught, what he preached. But, man, scattered all through the Gospels are his work of just engaging people. And there's a principle there, I think just a reminder, kind of a header for us, that Jesus' ministry was always about connecting people to God. He, remember, he did miracles not for the sake of doing a miracle. There was a bigger reason. He ministered to people not just for the sake of meeting a physical need, not just to heal them, right, because they were going to ultimately pass away again. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was going to die eventually, and he did. He didn't live for eternity, right? It was kind of round two again at some point. We don't have that recorded in Scripture. But he didn't do his, his ministry, his works, just for the sake of doing those things and meeting needs on the spot. He did it with an overarching picture in mind, and that was to connect people to God. It was always about people. His ministry was not about a lot of things it could have been. It wasn't about politics. I mean, you think about if, if the stage was set for his ministry to be all about politics. Good night. Born, I mean, he, he came in to this world in the first century when the people of Israel are under Roman occupation, Roman rule. And the Jewish people to begin with expected that the Messiah would come and set them free from Rome. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were crying out for. That's what they were waiting on. Because when the Messiah finally comes, we're going to get our land back. We're going to have freedom back. We're going to get our name back. And we're not going to have to live under these Roman occupiers any longer. That's why they often tried to take Jesus by force. That's why many of his miracles, or some of them at least, were done. And he said, don't tell anybody about this. Because it would be the natural inclination of the people, the Jewish people, to say, here's a Messiah, now get out there and set us free from Rome. And it wasn't about that. His mission was not political. His mission was spiritual. It was about people, connecting people ultimately to God. It was to see his mission accomplished and, and, and his ministry works would be one of the vehicles he would use to accomplish the setting people free and leading people ultimately to God. He, he saw people differently. Look again what it says here, Matthew chapter 9, kind of our focus verse today. Matthew chapter 9, we already, we already read verse 36 through 38. Look, look back a little bit further to verse 12 and verse 13, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew again records Jesus' words, said when he said, or when he heard this, he, Jesus, said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. 
He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus didn't die for everyone. He did. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? But it meant that Jesus' primary reason for coming was of a spiritual reason. It was to bring sinners who knew and were broken by their sin into a brand new relationship with God. And back in verse 36, again, the passage we just read earlier, the way he saw people was through those lenses, those spiritual lenses. They were distressed, dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. His ministry was messy and his ministry was costly. Eight different times we have recorded where Jesus accepted an invitation to dinner. (laughs) Sometimes that invitation acceptance, right, when he went to have dinner, ended up costing him. Because he knew the religious people would be talking about him behind his back, questioning him, questioning his morals, whenever he would sit down to dinner with those who were, quote, tax collectors and sinners. And yet eight different times we see in the New Testament where Jesus accepted an invitation to dinner. He went to a party at the invitation of Matthew, right? Invited all of his friends who needed a Savior to come as well. You think that raised Jesus' esteem in the eyes of the religious leaders? No, I just gave him one more bullet to fire. His ministry was messy. He would spend time with people that, in a sense, would ruin his reputation with the religious judgmentalists, and it did. And his ministry was ultimately costly. He would break barriers. He would break social barriers. He would break societal barriers, sitting down with a woman at the well in Samaria, for example, John chapter 4. He would break uh, barriers of religion where he would, uh, he would make the comment that the religious leaders would, uh, would often talk about not, not murdering. And he would say, you know, it says not to murder, but I tell you that if you hate your brother in your heart without cause, then you're guilty of murder. He would say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're, you're guilty of adultery, right? He would kind of move those boundaries out to where it wasn't just about actions, it was about heart attitude as well. He broke all kinds of norms of his day as he ministered to people, as he sought to draw people to relationship with God. And it got messy, and it was so costly that he was ultimately crucified for it. And yet he connected people to God always by first meeting them on their turf. (laughs) You know, there's a lot to learn there. He went to people. He didn't expect people to come to him. He didn't say, I'll meet you in the temple, and uh, the first ten that are there, I'm going to lead you to the Father. He He didn't do that. Now, he would do ministry in the temple, but his ministry wasn't so much temple centric. (laughs) It was on the hills, and it was on the lake, and it was where the people were, the hurting people, where the lepers were on the roadside, where he would come alongside them. And he would meet them for where they were, for who they were. Listen, listen. And it was the people that the culture had despised. And it was the people that the culture had marginalized and pushed to the fringe and to the curb. Listen, that Jesus would be the first one to them. And he would meet them on their turf. So what are the implications of this? I mean, what does this mean for us? If we care truly about how Jesus did ministry, what are some things we can take away from it? Let me give you just a few and we're going to wrap it up and be done. Here's one implication that our ministry has to be on other people's turf as well. 
when I started a ministry in the 1990s, and certainly even before then, um, it was much easier to hang your denominational sign outside the doors of the church and swing open the doors and turn on the lights, and then people would come. Those days are, to a large degree, kind of gone. <laughs> I don't know if you've realized that or not. Turning on the lights and swinging open the doors and lighting up your sign on the corner isn't going to attract people. It's going to be people like us who know Jesus and the difference he's made getting engaged in their lives on their turf and meeting them where they are, not with a judgmental spirit, but just simply demonstrating the compassion and the love that Jesus demonstrated when he was on this earth and not watering down the message that only he can save and letting people know the good news. It's always been really good news that there's a Savior who still sets free and delivers and, and saves. But we have to meet them on their turf. A second implication is that our ministry must always put people above ourselves. We can't be the center of our own message. It can't be about us. It always has to be about other people. And here's the thing. Jesus demonstrated this most clearly on the cross. He said, well, Brooks, I thought Jesus was all about his glory and about God's glory, the Father's glory. Absolutely, yes, he was, without shame and without without compromise, because when you're God, it should be all about your glory. But here's the thing. Had you and I been there 2,000 years ago, had we seen him up on that hill, on that cross suspended? I'm not trying to be overly emotional here, but just simply feet rooted in reality. If we'd have seen him there in real time, suspended with a crown of thorns and uh, nails through his wrists and through his two feet, with a spear having gone into his side, had we seen him there on that hill, we would have very clearly understood that in that moment it was about us. To the point and to the, to, to, the, to the willingness to even give his own life so that we could have a shot at having a relationship with God. And when we seek to engage in ministry the way he did because he calls us to replicate his ministry, when, we're, when, when we seek to do ministry, it always has to happen by putting people ahead of ourselves and, and here's the thing as we seek to do that, that as we aim ultimately to do ministry the way that Jesus did, our ministry is also going to get messy and it's also going to be costly. When you look at one of the most well-known parables that Jesus shared, the parable of the of the, uh, uh, the Good Samaritan. In that parable, it was the Good Samaritan, right, the unexpected hero of the story, who took up the man who'd been beaten, right, and left for dead, and he takes him to the inn, and he absorbs the cost, and when he shows up at the inn in that parable, he probably has this man's blood on him, and he reaches into his own pocket, and he says to the innkeeper, this should be enough to pay for his care from this point forward, and if it's not, next time I circle through town, I'll pay you what I owe you. Ministry is messy and costly, and for the church and for the Christian who wants to insulate ourselves from the mess of this world and from the cost of what it means to reach people the way Jesus did, listen, we may as well change the name and call it a club rather than a church because the church throughout the pages of the New Testament has always known and been known for getting into the midst of the fray and going into the ditch where the hurting people are to introduce them to a Savior who meets us even there. And we have to decide for us as a church, right? Constantly, it's ongoing, constant evaluation. Are we willing to jump into the mess and to absorb the cost of what it means to extend the mission that our Savior embodied of seeking and saving the lost? Because if we're not, we just need to own that and call ourselves something other than a church. And the only way the church does it is when the people who know Jesus embrace it and do it in his strength and power as well.
And then finally, I think the last implication is that our ministry must always ultimately link with the mission of leading people to Jesus. It's, it's, it's always good to do a good deed for the sake of meeting a need, but somewhere along the way, it has to track back to who Jesus is. It's in his name. And some of you have gifts and skills. Some of you work, many, most everybody in here, you work in a workplace, and you're able to do works like Jesus did to do good works. You have the ability to kind of build a name for yourself, not that it's all about you. In your workplace and in your neighborhood, on your, on your ball team, and on your campus, and the places where you go to work out and where you spend your time, you have the opportunity to kind of build your na- a name for yourself that says, you know what, that person's all about doing good. I mean, they just, they're always good to me. But there has to be a point where it's not just about meeting the need. It's about connecting it to Jesus and to the one who can meet needs of the greatest nature, alone, forever. So for most of you in here, I think you've probably given your lives to Christ. You have a relationship with him. Maybe you've never thought about that relationship between his ministry, how it connects back to his mission, and how it was ultimately informed by his message. And the challenge for you today as a believer, as a follower, is to say, what is my ministry going to look like? And is it going to line up with his mission of reaching people for the sake of the gospel? To introduce them ultimately to a God who alone can save. And are you willing to surrender yourself and say, Lord, would you use me in my life to do that? If you don't know him, man, no better time than today to ask Jesus, God himself, who's done all the hard work of dying and rising for you of asking him to forgive you and take over. And he'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, it's so interesting to see how how your mission informed your message and how all of that was validated by the ministry of your life. Had, Had you just kind of built a nice little comfortable palace somewhere outside of Jerusalem and stayed there until the time came for you to be crucified, You certainly could have done it. You would have deserved it as God. You didn't do that for three and a half years or so of public ministry. You validated who you were through the words that you proclaimed and through the miracles that you performed and through the ministry that you provided to hurting people. And the ones that the culture had overlooked, you got right in the midst of to the point to where you developed quite the reputation (laughs) for being known as one who hangs out with sinners. God, I pray for us as a church, for us as believers, that we can have that same reputation too, Lord. Sadly, we're often only known for how we distance ourselves from the very groups that you reached and touched and died for. And so, God, may our ministry individually as followers and as a church be reflective of your message and of your mission to seek and to save the lost. And God, whatever good comes of it, Lord, we pray only you get the glo- that only you get the glory because only you deserve it. And so thank you, God, for the Gospels and how they reflect to us the way you walked your walk and lived your life and the ministry you did. Some of it we're not expected to do. Much of it we are. Not in our own strength and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Help us to do that well. And may our church do it well. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.